So we've been going through a series, as you know, about the questions of Jesus. I highly recommend the book, Jesus is the Question, right? He asks 307 questions. He only answers a few directly. Usually Jesus does the infuriating thing of asking, you know, answering a question with a question or telling a parable. Part of what I want to challenge you to do in the midst of this is to become, and, and for us as a community to become, question-asking people. Like, if you've ever been around someone, gone to coffee with someone, been at a dinner party with someone who asks you good questions, it always thinks like, man, I, you know, they really ask good questions. Like, I like that person. They, they got to know me. They, they cared. Sometimes I'll leave and I'll think, I don't know that I ask a single, I talked a lot, I don't know that I asked a question, right? Like, they know a lot about me, I don't know anything about them. But what would it be like for us as a community to become question-asking people? So, when I feel frustrated or defensive or afraid or jealous, if I stop for a second and begin to ask, why do I feel like this? Or what did you mean by that, right? If we actually stopped to ask questions rather than to react or respond. I've been trying to do it with my kids, so I'm trying to ask them more specific questions because when I say things like, how was your day, what do they say? Fine. <laughs> By the way, that's what I say too all the time. So then I say, no. What was, what's the time you laughed today? What was your favorite thing about what happened at recess? Right? I, I'm trying to get, I get specific, right? Or like, what was your favorite part of the trip we took when we went to Mexico? Or like, the other day I just asked Sullivan, like, do you feel like you're happy? Like, as a, like, is your life good? Who's your favorite person at school? Like, I'm just trying to ask these things. Is there anybody at school that you feel really safe with, really comfortable with, just be yourself? And the more specific I get, and the, the more he shares. And like he opens up, and the more I get to know him. And so, um, I think he needs me to tell him less things. My daughter, Nina, needs me to tell her less things. They need me to ask them more questions. They need me to engage in that way. So that's the challenge, right? Let's be a little bit more like Jesus. Let's ask each other good questions. Let's really be open and listen. And instead of responding, which I have like knee-jerk reactions, if I slow down and ask three questions instead, things turn out better, right? Um, I'm challenging you to send me your questions if you have any, not that I can answer them. Uh, but I am trying to gather them up for future sermons. Uh, I'll send back two other questions for the question you send me. It'll be great to keep doing that. Um, so today's question is particularly challenging, I think. The question that Jesus asks of those listening. So the scripture comes from Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 27 through 36. The beginning is particularly interesting. It says, Jesus says, But I say to you who are willing to listen. If Jesus starts something like that for those who are willing to hear, for those who are willing to listen, you know what comes next is not going to be fun. It means that most of the people there are not willing to listen, right? Like, or uh, like, I'll like I'll sit here and the words will come in and then I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to do any of that stuff, right? So for those who are willing to listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer them the other as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand things back from those who take them. 
Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. Here are the questions. If you love only those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect payment, why should you be commended? Sinners expect payment back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act, for God is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. So be compassionate, just as God is compassionate. I don't... I got a question. <laughs> yeah, what's up, James? So, no, you're living into the sermon series. You got a question. Good. So, why, so when it says love your enemies, why do we have to love our enemies? Um, I don't know that you have to. My question, I think, is um, what's the alternative? Um, so if I don't love my enemy, what's my alternative? Someone else will love you? Well, I, I'm thinking about in my own life. So I have people that are really difficult for me to love. And if I'm not going to try to show them grace or love or compassion, then what is the alternative to that? And I, I don't know. Maybe there are lots of alternatives. True. But I'm not sure that bitterness is the, is the solution. If he's your enemy, well, technically... That enemy is—he—he he probably has an enemy with you. So it's—it to me, I kind of see it like, okay, so I'm an enemy to him. Well, technically, I'm an enemy. He's an enemy to me. So should I actually like start loving him? Because, well, first I'm his enemy. Or, or should he love me because? I'm his enemy. I, I, I kind of... Who do you think it should start with? Well, it should start with the one himself, the Lord, to solve or to love each other, so... Who in that situation can you control? You. You can't control me. Well, I meant... Yeah, you mean, yeah, like you can control yourself. Maybe we'll start there. You know what I want to do when I have an enemy? I want them to love me first. I want them to say they're sorry first. I want them to figure it out and come to me, right? That's what I want. I'm like, I'll be great. Once they fix themselves, once they stop being so mean, annoying, selfish, well, then, it'll, then everything will be great. And the problem is I can't control them. Mm -hmm. So then I have to start somewhere inside of myself, somewhere in my heart. So, did we actually think that Jesus thought about that question well? <laughs> um, here's what I think. It seems to me that Jesus doesn't just say it. He does it. He models it. Like he, he literally he shows you what it looks like. All kinds of ways. 
from the way that Judas gets invited to the Last Supper and gets placed in a placement of honor right next to Jesus, from the way Jesus responds to the crowd from the cross, to the way Jesus, right, cares for the people who are actively seeking to kill him. I mean, he does it over and over. He models this. But, I mean, I think your question is legitimate, James, right? Like, that sounds foolish to love someone who has it out for you. That sounds like, that sounds like a recipe to be a doormat. Loving your enemy sounds like a way to get abused over and over again. You gotta see like the, the state of the presidents. They always there at each other. Yeah, don't look to the world, don't look to politics if you want to see examples of loving your enemy. <laughs> That's a good point. So, um, so I want to make one caveat uh, before going forward too. So, I know there has been a culture within Christianity, and I certainly grew up with this culture, and in some ways the heart of it is really good, right? Like you really, like there is a sense in which as Christians we are called. Jesus makes it clear we are supposed to love even those who harm us. We are to forgive. But that can get interpreted in ways that say, hey, you're in a horrible relationship, you got to stick it out. You don't get to leave, right? Oh, like your parents, every time you're around them, you're beaten down, verbally abused, right? Some people in relationships with physical abuse and other things, oh no, you just got to, you got to forgive. You got to love even your enemy. I in no way want this to be some excuse to stick in situations where you're being treated poorly, where you're not safe. Loving your enemies does not mean you become a doormat and a place for abuse. That's not what it means. That's not my argument. That's not my intent. In fact, to love those that are difficult often means you have to get away from them. You have to become safe. You have to like literally distance yourself and heal before you can ever extend anything like forgiveness. So don't hear me saying stay in a bad situation. I'm not saying that. And sometimes the bad situation is with parents. It's with friends. It's with colleagues. And you've got to figure out how to draw boundaries. Right? Love does not mean boundarylessness. That's not a word. Love does not mean the absence of boundaries. Right? But the question that Jesus asks still stands. If you only love people that it's easy to love, what credit is that to you? The call here is to love people that are difficult to love. And the word enemy, I mean, we can think of it in a dramatic sense, but it can be every day. Any given day, my enemy could be Kelly. It could be a colleague. It could be a student. It could be a, a, a child. Anytime I feel like loving this person is difficult, anytime I feel like they're resisting my love or I'm resisting theirs, right? Anytime it's like I'm resisting God's love, there's a sense in which those relationships can become tense. So I don't want you to think of enemy like, I don't even know, Osama bin Laden or something, right? It's not like that. It's, it's often much more in the moment and direct and personal. What, is it, what does it mean to care about people that are difficult for you? I mentioned uh, in sermons past that I think Christians have an identity crisis on our hands. And the reason I think that is if you sit on a plane next to someone and you don't know them right, I think you, most of you have this experience, and then they talk, uh, and you find out, oh, this person's a Christian. In my mind, I don't know anything about them. 
If they tell me they're Christian, I don't know anything. I don't know their politics. I don't know their ethics. I don't know much about them, right? Being Christian has become so nebulous it can mean anything. That's, that means we have no identity, right? Like if, I, if someone sits down and they, they say, oh, I've been in the military, I have to know something about them. I know about at least some of their training, some of their experiences. If someone sits down and says, oh, I'm Mormon, I have to know more about them than if they said they were Christian. Here's one way we might be able to solve our identity crisis. Christians are called to love not just people that are easy. We're called to love people that are really difficult. Maybe that in and of itself should define who we are as Christians. That we are motivated to care for and to love and to forgive those who hurt us. If we could just get that one thing right, I think um, there would be people lining up to get into our communities, right? That this is a place where we don't practice resentment or revenge or bitterness, but we practice love. And that means something like, deep down at my core, even the people that have hurt me, my hope is not for them to get what they deserve. My hope is not they get their comeuppance, but that somewhere deep in me, my real hope is for their transformation and ultimate redemption. That's what I want. Now again, that might mean I need to get away from them because they're not safe. But after I can get away and get safe, what I really want for them is not to get what they deserve or to give them what they deserve. What I really want is them to change, to be transformed, to be redeemed. And if that's my heart, then I will find eventually over time a way to forgive. So Jesus says, love your enemy. Part of what I think that entails is becoming what Paul calls as a living sacrifice. So I'm going to read a little bit from Romans 12. But this notion of living sacrifice means something like you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Once you say you're Christian, you have to count the cost. You say, yes, I want to be Christian. You're not yours anymore. You're God's. You belong to Jesus. You are now a living sacrifice saying, here I am, God, use me. Here I am, God, I'm, I'm ready, I'm at your disposal. How can I love and serve the world? That's what being a living sacrifice means, right? You are God's. And so, hear these words from Romans 12. They're no easier, by the way. Brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate action. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil. Hold on to what is good. Love each other like the members of your own family. Show honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourself to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless them and don't curse. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who cry. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart and have all the answers. 
Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with more evil, but show respect for what everyone else thinks is good. If possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with everyone. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. So I want to talk about what this might look like. So I have two short stories. I, one, I sent the video out. I don't know if you watched it or not, but I sent a series of videos. But uh, there's this really powerful model of this in Israel. So the uh, Daud Nasar, the Nasar family has lived near Bethlehem for over a hundred years and luckily they have the paperwork because they're Palestinians and the Israelis have been encroaching in this territory creating new settlements but they have written documents that this is their land so they are Palestinians but they're also Christians and this is a dwindling group Palestinian Christians in this area many of them have fled but the Nassar family won't leave they continue to stay and so the Israeli government really wants this land it's desirable it's up on a hill it's got an olive grove and so they started offering money to buy it, and the Nassar family won't buy it. They've, we've been here for over 100 years. We want to continue to be on this land. And so through the military, the Israelis have begun to put pressure on them. So they bulldozed their olive grove, which is just devastating when you see the aftermath because it takes 10 years for an olive tree to produce olives. 10 years. So you can't just replant. They still wouldn't give up the land and so they shut off their electricity and their water. So now they have to collect rainwater. They live on generators. They won't leave. And so instead, they've created uh, an organization on their land called the Tent of Nations where they host Palestinian and Israeli children and they talk about peace. They do whole workshops and camp situations. They do a women's empowerment uh, workshop. They do. I mean, in this last year, uh, pre-COVID, 2019, they had 13,000 visitors to this nonprofit. But there's a giant rock on the property as you enter it that says, we refuse to be enemies in like 20 different languages. We refuse to be enemies. So when you listen to Daud Nasser talk about it, he says, um, well, we had several options. One is to flee, like many Palestinian Christians, and we don't, we're not going to flee. Two, we can be a victim, and we can live into that, but we refuse to be victims. Three, we can hate, and we can become violent, and we can defend our property with violence, but we refuse to be violent, we won't do that. Four, we can live like Jesus. He calls it the Jesus way, where we don't run, we don't become victims, and we don't become violent. We figure out a way to transform this in love, and that's what they've done. So they frequently invite Israeli soldiers to their home if they'll come to have meals, to share tea, to talk about why the land means so much to them. And slowly but surely they're winning the hearts of those who have once bullied them. That's what it means to love your enemy. And when you love your enemy, it's a double victory because you win their heart. You haven't won through force, you haven't won through power. You've won by showing them what it looks like, just a little bit of what God's love looks like. In the book, the second story, uh, Martin Kobenaver, he talks about he pastored in Connecticut, and uh, as a pastor, uh, 
they had a missionary family, so churches would sponsor missionary families, so they had this long-standing relationship uh, with the missionary family. I'm going to read just a section of it to you. Uh, the missionary's name was uh, Lloyd Van Vacker, and he, his wife and children traveled to various places. Well, they ended up in the Philippines uh, later in Lloyd's life. It was just he and his wife. He was going to be the president of a university in the Philippines. So the church had been supporting them. And then one day a group of radical, like a, a radical Muslim sect in the Philippines broke onto campus and kidnapped Lloyd. And so you, as the church, you can imagine they freaked out. And so they began raising money for the ransom. So that he's kidnapped, they're holding him for ransom. In the midst of this, Lloyd's wife has health problems, I assume associated with the stress, and she actually passes away while he's being held in captivity. So in the midst of this tense situation, um, well, let me read. On the evening of March 9th, 11 armed men took Lloyd from his office. The next day, our church was informed he had been kidnapped by members of a Muslim sect and was being held for ransom. The senior minister immediately wrote a letter to tell the members of the congregation. He passed along what little information he had and then added, pray for Lloyd in his captivity. Pray for his wife Maisie as she anxiously awaits word. Pray for both the Christian and Muslim communities in the Philippines that the violence might stop. And pray for Lloyd's captors that they might know the peace of God. I remember so clearly how word of Lloyd's captivity affected our entire church, and especially I remember the reaction to the last request in the letter. The request for prayers for Lloyd's captors and persecutors. It sent a strong and immediate jolt through the congregation. Some church members asked, with no small member of measure of exasperation, why should we pray for them? They're threatening our friend. Others said things like, sure, I'll pray for his captors. I'll pray that they come to their senses. I'll pray that they get what they deserve. Obviously, we did not need to be told to pray for Lloyd or Maisie. Our prayers turn easily to the ones we love. We have great concern for them. We want good things for them. And it may not be too difficult to pray for Christians or Muslims generally because such words as Christian or Muslim can be comfortably vague. They can lack a human face. The easiest prayers are always the most general. It is when our prayers gain specificity that they make us uncomfortable. So it is not surprising that it was this last request, a request to specifically pray for the people holding him, that it became difficult. So after Maisie passed away, after about 30 days of captivity, Lloyd was let go. There was no explanation, no ransom was paid, although it was collected. He was free. But now, of course, without a wife. And so Lloyd was given a choice at that point how to spend the money that had been collected for his ransom. He too decided to give the money for a scholarship fund. But the fund was not to be used for American students. Rather, the fund he established was specifically earmarked for people that were part of the very Muslim sect that kidnapped him and threatened his life for those four weeks. That's how you love your enemy. And I often wonder what transforms lives more, 
giving people what they deserve as though we could figure that out, or showing people grace. For me, the difficult thing is how do we do this, and I'll end here. The how is always the hard part. Like, great, forgive. Okay, how? I I've tried. I, I still feel a lot of bitterness, right? Love your enemy. Awesome. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We, we want to do that, but, but I'm angry. I feel bitter. I don't want to be around them. I never want to speak to them. They've hurt me. And so the how, I think, is often this long journey that begins by trying to see ourselves and other people the way God does. How do I change my frame of reference to see the people that are harmful to me, that are hard for me to love, as broken, as lost, as in the dark, as afraid, as insecure, as ignorant? How do I see them those ways rather than evil? How do I see them? Like when God looks at people that hurt each other, I know that God sees them as lost. Like if they only knew. They're broken. They're in the dark. They need redemption. And if I could see myself that way, and if I could see others that way, I think my, my heart would begin to soften so that my ultimate goal for them would not be to get their comeuppance, but that my ultimate goal would be for their salvation, their transformation, their ultimate redemption. That's how you start to love people that are difficult for you. See them as children of God. That doesn't mean they're not selfish. It just means they're selfish often because they're broken people, like you and I. And what I want is for them to be whole. And what I want for myself is to be whole. Right now the church is dealing with issues related to this project where I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to love people that are difficult, that we don't see eye to eye, where we're having dis like real disagreement. And I can tell you that as much as I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. I'm challenging you, but the church is being challenged currently. And so I'm in prayer, deep prayer, about what does it mean to show the love of God to people who are in opposition? I think doing that well, though, is ultimately what it means to be Christian and to follow the example of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that not only do you call us to love people that are difficult, you did it. And you continue to do it. Because whether we want to believe it or not, all of us are difficult to love. And so I pray that we might show grace to ourselves, that we might begin to see ourselves the way you see us as children of God, deeply loved, but that we might also see those that are hard for us to love as your children, lost and broken and in need of your love, that our heart's desire would not be for them to get their punishment, but that our desire for them would be to be transformed and redeemed. So fill our hearts, change the way we see and feel about the world, and help us to model the love of your Son. Amen. If you would please stand for our closing song. Uh, this song is called They Will Know Us by Our